card-carrying basing at this point. Ben Alomar, director of sports analytics at ESPN. Just the next to Big Poppy be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast. Welcome. I'm Professor Adi Weiner, and this is your crash course on the major themes from our two-hour program, Wharton Moneyball, which you can hear live on Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Eastern Time. I am one of the co-hosts and collaborators, and I'm also a professor of statistics at the Wharton School, and I'm here to break down the last two weeks' top takeaways we had some wonderful guests, including Michael Salfino, who's a writer for the Wall Street Journal, and he's also a fantasy analyst for Yahoo Sports, and he had some incredible things to say about both football and baseball. We also interviewed Stuart Mandel, the senior college sports columnist for Fox Sports and host of the podcast, The Audible. He had a terrific conversation with co-host Cade Massey. And we also interviewed Rodney Paul, the sports economist and professor of sport management at Syracuse University. And our last guest is Rob Volman, author of many books, including the latest stat shot, The Ultimate Guide to Hockey Analytics. So, so we have some hockey to round up our program. So let's go to our first clip, which is a discussion with Michael. What is the gap between the elite quarterbacks and a quarterback that you that's around that you could get? I mean, how big is it? And, 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 you, what, and basically, you what I'm saying is, what is get them. No, you the, can't what, even you, get, what you can get, like on the free agent market, what teams let go, it's, it's a huge garbage. Gap. Yeah, yeah, like you know, Kirk Cousins, who who I like probably way more than the market in reality, not just in fantasy, is is a guy that. The Redskins are never going to let him go. They'll give him anything he wants now, and he's and you you know I, I would have a hard time arguing that he's a lock to be a top ten quarterback. No, he's not. But but, but. he's but the the level the bar for a franchise quarterback is is relatively low. It's pretty much is this person a plausible starter on a team that can make the playoffs? That and if you have right. that guy, that sounds about right. Yeah, which is probably like maybe like quarterback like eighteen. Yeah, that sounds right. You know then. Mm-hmm. Pretty much you have to pay him as much as the best quarterback in the league. <laughs> so the background for that conversation was actually a lament between Michael Salfino and myself, both Jets fans and both lamenting the permanent, it seems, inability of the Jets to procure and hold on to a top quarterback. So I asked the question, what is the gap between an elite quarterback and sort of a run-of-mill one? And Michael's answer was not only is the gap big, but even a run-of-the-mill quarterback and someone in the middle of the league is got to be tied up and locked up for big money because they're just that important. So we'll see what goes on. I mean, we're talking in the future of what's going to happen with Tom Brady. He's almost 40 years old. Um, how do these teams get these top quarterbacks in how does a team like the Jets manage to acquire one, even though they seem to have such a history of being unable to do so? Our next clip is, again, Michael Salfino from the Wall Street Journal, this time talking about baseball. Suspettis was like exactly league average in center field last year. In other words, like he was uh, he was maybe minus one play 
in the outfield versus what you would expect from a normal center fielder. Mm-hmm. So this is actually interesting uh, in some so intersects with my research area is that fielding is still a question mark because a lot of the other fielding metrics say he's bad. And so yes. what you're saying is here's another one based on video, based on buckets, probability buckets, and they don't see he's bad. So I can understand where you quibble over a game or a run here on average over the course of a season, but quibbling between average and way below average indicates a problem with the methodology. Yes, definitely. We wrote a big article about that in the journal where we talked to people and we used the inside edge data, and supposedly this problem was going to be rectified with some of the, the Star cast. Wars Yep, yeah. we've got the data. We're working on it. Maybe we'll rectify it. Yes, that that would be that would be useful. But I but I'd be surprised if you if you found any outfielder was more than ten plays below average. And when you look at how Suspedis can hit at, as a as a center, center fielder, fielder, that's extremely he's, valuable. He's definitely worth even if he was minus fifteen plays. I would have no problem. Oh no, with no, I, him I out thought there. he was really a detriment. But maybe this is I stand at least more in the uh, unknown ca- category on that one. So back to baseball, one of my most interesting topics, one of my do research in. And the real question here was, um, the Mets signed Cespedes, and uh, what's his value? So a lot of that hinges upon how much of a defensive liability he is in center field, because he can really hit, and a center fielder who can really hit is worth a lot. And the way that uh, wins about replacements, the war figure works, and it adds a big whopping bonus to anyone who plays a, a position that is tough to field. So when you have you know really top-quality hitting, hitting production at a position that's very tough, the only possibility that you aren't going to be extremely valuable is if you're very bad in the field. And the... Fielding analytics that I've been looking at seems to indicate seem to indicate that he's just really not that good of a fielder. But um, what Michael was talking about is a new company that really looks at the video, want play by play, and essentially discovered that he really may have cost one play on average over the course of the season. And if that's accurate, then he's an average center fielder with a way above average bat, and the Mets were then right to sign him. Um, I think in the future we're going to get better data and maybe finalize this discussion, but that's still a long ways away. So let's hear again from Michael Salfino. I think the interesting thing in baseball this year is going to be if anybody follows that Indians model of which they were forced into in the postseason, which would be making do a couple games a week with a rotating um, assortment of pitchers that are basically your starting pitchers where nobody goes through the lineup more than once. I mean, couldn't you build? Couldn't you build a team? It's so hard to find five starters, right? So, couldn't you build a team on like two really good starters, one okay one, and then just mix and match those other two games a week, where you're where none of your other pitchers, yeah, goes through the lineup more than once. Like to me, that would be the right way to play. It would be way cheaper too, because that fifth guy that you get, who's just like basically an innings eater, is still going to cost you like fifteen million a year now. Wow, starters are that expensive? Yeah. So do you do you see more innovation in the way teams are using their pitching staff? People talk about this kind of stuff. I know They're Bill starting James, to. I Bill mean, James talked to Sox and using their pen differently a few years ago, and then it didn't work out, and so that kind right. of backfired. Do you think there's chance that they'll do – I mean, here's the Indians – Things worked out well for them this but year. But they were forced into it. Would, it. would they have done that as a choice, and they, though? It was a short series. I mean, Miller pitched enormous numbers of innings. He can't do that for a season. Right. But you wouldn't really worry about Miller would still be once you got into the point of the game, like he would never be one of your early guys. No. 
Okay, so there you have it, Mike, really just helping us uh, wrap our minds around the future of pitching use. And essentially his point was you can... You need two starters for sure, but maybe afterwards you can piece it all together with a whole bunch of middle relievers and short relievers and a closer. No one really has to go through the lineup more than once. They can all throw really hard. And with the development of um, these high velocities, high accurate pitching, strikeout focused, I think that's going to be real change into the future. So our next guest that we're going to talk to is uh, Stuart Mandel. He's a senior college sports columnist for Fox Sports. He's also host of the podcast The Audible, which you can hear with his colleague Bruce Feldman. And he is an expert on college football. So here is a clip from his interview with Cade Massey. Stuart, we we do a lot of analytics around here. And um, some of us do a fair bit around football and college football even. And um, I... I, we're always interested in talking to folks who, who are in the industry and aren't drawing that much on analytics on what we can do better um, in order to be more effective or to get more into the conversation. So in your, in, you know, analytics is making progress on all the sports and even in college football, but you're involved and you're, you're central in lots of these conversations. And, and, and what's your sense of what analytics needs to do to get more traction? Where do you like it? What do you not like about it? What advice would you have for us? It's a great question because I feel like college football is probably the one sport that is using it the least. I it's mean, close. It, that's, analytics, that's about right, yeah. Yeah, analytics is now very uh, – certainly college basketball, Ken, Com- Ken Pomeroy started that trend a while ago. Certainly baseball, certainly NBA, um, a little bit NFL. There are a couple of people like Bill Connolly at SB Nation who are trying to do it in college football, but it just hasn't really caught on. And with the committee – you know, I was encouraged. We went through, uh, they had a media mock seminar the first year yep. uh, that I went through. And you could see everything that they had at their disposal. And, um, you know, they have a whole, they have an analytics company that provides them a whole uh, set of that data. I just don't know how much they're using it. You know, right. I think some of the people in that room, I mean, it tends to skew older for one thing. A lot right. of people in their 50s and 60s on that committee. And some of them are former coaches, and they trust what they see with their eyes and whatnot. So on the last call, Kirby Hoka did mention um, a few stats categories, and when he was talking about Washington and Penn State, but it was pretty traditional yep. stuff. Yep. You know, I don't know that they're really getting too far into the advanced stats. So that is the uh, introduction to a new frontier. I mean, we'll see more college advanced stats in the future, but they're really not there yet. We look forward to that, and we await the more sophisticated statistical analysis that uh, is really taking over almost every other sport. So our next guest is Rodney Paul, a sports economist and professor of sports management at Syracuse University. Syracuse is the first university in the U.S. to offer a sports analytics program. Can you tell us where that's coming from? Why does this happen? Why Syracuse? Where did, where did this come from? Well, the uh, head of our department, uh, Michael Vealy, he takes students out each spring break to L.A., and they do an L.A. immersion trip, and he kind of gets a kind of state of the uh, industry uh, feel back from, feedback from the people that are working out there in terms of teams and different businesses. And the things that they consistently came back with was... Hold, the, hold on. Let me, let me make sure. Is this sure. just another boondoggle to get out of upstate New York in the cold early spring? <laughs> it could be. I mean, it's a matter of that. Uh, we applied uh, the analytics to that. Yeah, well. L.A. wasn't <laughs> randomly chosen. It was like the, the mecca of sports analytics. I'm suspicious, but okay. 
You're going to be setting up a Dominican uh, uh, baseball program soon <laughs> there you as go. well. There you go. That's a nice but idea. I actually love it. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, no, I kept getting the feedback from the industry executives that technology and analytics was kind of the next big thing that they were looking at and hiring and wanted to try to figure out a way to be able to, uh, to make it work. So we had some students in the last few years that were honors students that had done their honors theses related to sports analytics, and they were able to get jobs in the field in a variety of different ways. So we kind of brought those two things together and kind of based the degree off of that. Mm-hmm. And how big is the program now? And how big would you guys like it to be? Well, basically, I think what we're looking at is somewhere probably around 30 to 40 uh, majors and then a, a bunch of different minors in addition to that. Um, the limiting factor of that is that we really would like them to be able to do like the honors thesis. So we have a thesis as part of the program and to be able to get that level of individual attention, uh, can't go ahead and stretch it too far uh, to be able to oversee those type of projects. So we'd like to keep it, it. relatively small in terms of uh, those numbers. Well, there you have it, a new phenomenon, a actual degree program in sports analytics. And we look forward to that program's success and growth. And I know that here at Wharton, we don't have a sports analytics program. We have a statistics program and a business analytics program. And uh, you can major in one or the other, um, and you can create your own little sports analytics uh, discipline. I mean, we, we are much more focused on the nuts and bolts, the statistics, the computing, which is then readily applicable to really any field that you want to. Here's another clip. Rodney, is this a standalone major? Like, for example, as you know, at universities, sometimes you could say, well, you can be a sports analytics major, but you also have to have another, let's call it fundamental major, like statistics or finance or accounting. Is this, can you actually be just, I don't mean just in a bad way, can you be solely a sports analytics concentrator or a major? Yeah, it's aimed to be solely a sports analytics major, but we've designed it that you can double major very easily with mathematics, economics, mm. finance. Mm. Uh, the i school in terms of computers, so uh, we've you know, purposely put that together. That's uh, try to be able to make it very, very easy to double major, but you do not have to. Uh, there's so much overlap in the courses, though, that it's kind of uh, pretty easy for the students to be able to do that. So, Roddy, this is a qu- question from Shane. Um, so, obviously, we 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 know that we're. Tr- we're, we're openly trying to kind of encourage there's kind of a an, unfortunately a bit of a gender disparity in like the stem fields and gender i mean in in general um with respect to the sports and lakes program how what is kind of the gender breakdown of people in the program right now and and you know i assume you're trying to heavily incentivize women towards the program how's oh, that working out Definitely not. It's a matter of that. Uh, so few women in the field, it would be great to be able to build that up. That's something that we have in kind of the works to be able to try to attack a little bit earlier on, to be able to try to get some programs or some um, you know, camps or you know, summer things like you have down there, uh, to be able to try to attract minorities, women, etc., to be able to get into this. And we have a, a very, very good cohort of, of female students in the sport management program, and we'd like to go ahead and be able to encourage, encourage some of that to be able able to come into the uh, sport analytics program. I think sometimes it's just difficult to be able to to work that way because in terms of, let's say, women within the field, they might have such great opportunities in finance or in some other form of business that might go ahead and have a higher starting salary than what they would see in sports, and it's just a natural movement away from that. So I think that there's uh, there's things to do to be able to try to attract, but we'd love to go ahead and be able to uh, to have that be a key component of the program. So two features there 
are uh, actually interesting. Um, first is that it's, it is a standalone major, which is um, a really good, interesting call, but it also really overlaps with mathematics, statistics, economics, probably some computing, so you're pretty close to getting something else. And of course, if I were sitting in the chair as an advisor, I probably would encourage that. I'm not really sure how many jobs there truly are in as a sports analyst in statistics. Um, in all the sports, there's, there's certainly a tremendous amount of growth, but uh, there aren't really how many positions can there really be. We're not talking on the business side. We're talking about statistical analysts on the, the actual play side of the, of the, of the industry. The other question that came up was was the gender imbalance, which is undoubtedly you know enormous. I don't have any any solutions. I know I run a summer program here at Wharton called Wharton Moneyball Academy, and our percentage of uh, girls in our high school program is about one tenth. Um, and uh, we've we've been trying to tr- try to recruit, but it's just uh, it's it's an uphill slog. I mean, I'm not really sure it's because of finance that's uh, the competition. It's simply because I don't think that you have to have a lot of things coming together in one person to be want to interest to be interested in a sports analytics program, particularly a summer program. It's got to be statistics, computing, and love of sports. You need all three, and they're just you know it's not that hard to it's hard to find individuals who fit that particular uh, profile. It's even harder to find women who are interested in this. So we'll see what happens in the future. Our last two clips are with Rob Volman, author of many books about hockey. And the book in particular is latest, Stat Shot, The Ultimate Guide to Hockey Analytics. Let's hear from him. Hockey basically, uh, you know, if other sports are seen as a series of plays like in football or in, in terms of uh, pitches and baseball, hockey can sort of be seen as, a, as about like thousands of puck battles. But the puck battles occur all over the ice. They're different kinds with different numbers of players. Face-offs are sort of the best example of the puck battle because it's sort of one-on-one at a set point. Uh, so it's easier to record. It's easier to track. And, and basically it's the equivalent of, you know, in basketball or soccer when they just, you know, when the ball goes out of play and they, you know, they, they throw it back in. And essentially, uh, you know, the centers line up uh, on one of the face-off circles and, uh, um you know, they drop the puck, and, and, but, you know, they, one person has to put his stick down before the other, and it's usually, in, historically, it was the visiting team that had to put their stick down first, which gives the opposing team a slight advantage because the puck gets dropped the moment they put their stick down, gives them a slight advantage, and so as a result of that, uh, the home team usually won more face-offs. Well, now we're not, now we're not seeing that anymore uh, because it's the attacking team that gets to put their stick down last, like in the opposing zone. Um, of course, is it still the visiting team that has to put it down first at center ice? Center, yeah, it's still the home team. Uh, you know, get the advantage at center ice in the neutral zone. Uh, but a lot of times, they record the winner of a faceoff as uh, whichever team touches the puck first after the faceoff. Um, whereas I don't, I don't settle it that way in my view. And I write about this a little bit in Stats. I had a whole chapter on who's the best at faceoffs, and I judge the winner of a faceoff um, as. You know, if the attacking team gets a shot within seven seconds of the faceoff, I figure they won the faceoff. And if they don't, then I figure I figure the defending team won the faceoff. No matter who. Uh, interesting. Okay. So, yeah, Rob. This faceoff is to get the puck and take a shot, right? Interesting question. One of the things that's tough about most sports, other than baseball, is you don't have discrete segments. Two counterexamples to that sort of dilemma exists in, in soccer when you take penalty kicks and, I guess, in, in, in uh, basketball when you take uh, free throws and then in hockey when they're face-offs. And uh, this particular question leaves a lot of open possibilities. Our last clip is with Rob again, and he's going to be talking about um, possessions and shots. 
Is possession too imperfectly correlated with shots to make possession the more fundamental thing? Yeah, you might have gone too far. But everything you said, I, I agree with. Goals are the goals are the ultimate metric. In fact, ninety was it ninety seven percent? I think of a winning percentage can be explained by goals scored and prevented. Like you don't really need to know anything other than goals in hockey. It is the thing. It's like runs in baseball. However, there's only about five goals a game, so it can take a really long time before you have enough data to judge a team or or a player with goal based data, and that's why people like. Uh, shot attempt of shot based data because you know there can be many more shots per game like uh, a factor of 10 or 11 or 12 times as many shot attempts per game and it contains a lot of the same information as goals in the sense that to get a shot and to get a goal requires largely the same skill set the only real difference is that goals require you know higher shot quality like you know getting in close setting up a screen uh, maybe getting a deflection maybe getting a rebound cross-ice pass, shot off the rush, whatever. So there's a little bit more information in goals, but shot attempts basically has all the same data. Possession doesn't have the same amount of information as a shot attempt because possession just means you had the puck. Shot attempts means you had the puck and you turn that into a scoring opportunity. Got it. It's better than possession. One, one detail there, Rob, people talk about shots on goal versus shots. Is it that much more diagnostic? Do you, is it important to consider only shots on goal or do you consider all shots? You should generally consider all shots, and sometimes they're called shot attempts, just because historically the term shot has referred only to those um, that could have gone in um, if the goalie had not made the save. Okay. So uh, There's so, a lot of block shots, for example, in hockey that you would want to presumably take into account. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah, and, and also, you know, if you miss the net or hit the crossbar, I mean, you want to count that. I mean, yeah. you want to count pretty much every attempt to score. So there you have it. In, in hockey, it's a very interesting problem, which is shared by soccer, which is there are very few goals. And so the numbers just don't accumulate even across a season to really get a good statistical view of a sport or a team's performance over the course of a season. And certainly individual players are even more limited in terms of their data quantity. So what they're doing is they're looking for an, uh, a variable that you can measure that is far more numerous and in hockey, probably in soccer as well, but hockey specifically, there's shots. Um, and you want to kind of figure out what is the relationship between shot attempts, quality shot attempts, time of possession and things like that, and how those can be more um, be con- connected and correlated with actual um, goals. And once you have that large amounts of data, then you can really do real statistical analysis. And that's really the, the, the conundrum that faces anyone working outside of uh, baseball, which is how do you take these correlated events or low-scoring events and turn it into an enough data that you can really do analysis on? And that's where all the, the cameras and the sophisticated equipment is, uh, is coming into play because they're just generating massive amounts of data. And of course, it's for the statisticians to make sense of it. And we'll see what progress can be made. So that completes our show. And if you want to hear the full show, it's available for download on SoundCloud and on the Apple Store under podcasts. If you want to listen to us live, you can do that Wednesday mornings, 8 to 10 a.m. on Sirius XM's Business Radio Channel 111. And it is also replayed throughout the week. Please join us next week for another edition of the Wharton Moneyball postgame podcast. Until then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your analytics.